0: very eager to jump into our passage this morning in john chapter 8 but before we do that i want to ask you a question i want to ask you if you've ever had to entertain the conversation of if you had three wishes what would you wish for have you ever had to entertain a conversation where somebody asked you if you if you only had three wishes what would you wish for heaven i like that there you go Right now, maybe you're a little ornery or, you know, a little smart, and so you're like, well, the first wish is I would wish for more wishes. Now, we all know that can't work, right? Disney proved that. In Aladdin, you can't do that, so that, that's breaking the rules. Now, in the Crandall household right now, there is one of these types of questions going on right now. And my oldest son, Paxson, if you don't know, I've got four kids, one daughter, three boys, and my oldest son, Paxson, is, is incredibly brilliant. I love that kid. And He is just he's a handful I mean if you have ever wondered how many questions a human being can ask in one day Hang out with paxton for a day and he will show you what that threshold is So he went to our family and he said, okay guys if you could have only 10 superpowers What would you have and then he's realized okay, that's too much, right? And so he narrowed it down. He said, okay If you only have three and then the conversation went to one if you could only have One and then of course his brilliant father came up with the best superpower you could possibly have And that was to manipulate gravity See because then you could fly and then you could go fast and maybe you could time travel Okay, but we nerded out for a little bit now, you know Kind of where my son gets it from But I want I want to take it and kind of take that question because I think it's actually a really good question Or a really good type of question for us to ask as we close out john chapter 9 You see because however you frame these questions what's behind these questions is this What's most important? Right? The three wishes, idea is, if you only had three, what would you wish for? Right? The superpower question from Paxton is, if you only had one superpower, what would you want? What's most important? What's the greatest need? What's the biggest problem? So let's, let's, let's take this and make it spiritual. Okay? Let's, let's say if God was going to answer only one prayer from you, just one, what would you pray for? just think about it for a moment. Just to yourself, think about it for a moment. If God were only going to grant you one prayer, what's the biggest problem? What's your biggest need? What would you want God to do? Now, of course, it's not how God operates. God loves for us to pray, as Pastor Tim encouraged us. God loves for us to pray. He wants us to pray all the time. He wants us to pray continually. He tells us to pray for even the small things. So God doesn't operate like this, but let's just say for the sake of prioritizing, for the sake of figuring out what's most meaningful, if God could only grant one prayer. What would it be? Would it be for yourself? Would it be for somebody else? Would it be for health? Would it be for wealth? Would it be for power? Would it be for influence? Would it be for healing? Would it be for the deliverance of a loved one facing cancer? What would be your prayer? I think it's a very important question to ask as we journey into John chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 35, but here's what we're going to encounter when we get to John chapter 9, is Jesus is going to encounter two really big needs, two really big problems. Problems that need to be solved. And I think what John the gospel writer is trying to do for us and what Jesus is setting up for us is Jesus is going to show us of these two needs and both of them are incredibly great. He's going to say, "Let me tell you what the most important is. Let me tell you what priority 1 is." And showing us what priority 1 is, he'll tell us, "Here is what you should pray for. Here is what you should be concerned about." The first problem we're going to see is blindness. Blindness. Now that's a physical element that is a great burden for anybody to cope with. Blindness keeps us from the physical world. It keeps us from physical objects. But there's another problem that's going to be encountered. Another need, another great need, and it's pride. Pride and pride is much worse than blindness. See, pride keeps us from experiencing God blindness keeps us from experiencing the physical world it it keeps us from people but blindness keeps us from god from enjoying everything that he would have for us so if pride is the biggest problem it should be our biggest priority in our prayers let me show you this john chapter 9 verse 35 and what i would like to do is i'd like to summarize for you kind of the main idea, I think, of our passage in John chapter 9, and we're going to formulate it in a big idea. So if you're only going to write down one thing, you're going to take one note on your phone. I want you to take this down. I think this is the big idea of our passage this morning. The big idea is this. Pride is worse than blindness. Pride is worse than than blindness. Blindness is a physical thing that's a hard burden to bear. But blind, or sorry, but pride is more so damaging than blindness because it keeps us from experiencing God. Let's let's start first with blindness. Jesus just healed a man who was physically blind, but then his encounter is going to expand, and he's going to see this man be relieved of his spiritual blindness. Let's start together. John chapter 9. I'm going to move away from here because I want to get just a little bit closer to you, okay? I haven't seen you in a long time. I'll keep you out of the splash zone, okay? I won't spit on you, I promise. But I feel like i got to be a little more connected with you. Okay, so John chapter 9, verse 35 says this. Jesus heard that he had been cast out. and Having found him, he said, What's going on here? Jesus just healed this man who was born blind. He was born blind, and Jesus healed him. He, he, he put dirt and his spit together, and he put them together. He made mud anointed. His, his, his eyes told him to go wash, and the man was healed. What a great thing. And now Jesus meets him again, because the man has never seen Jesus. He didn't see him in the beginning because he was blind. He didn't see him during the miracle because his eyes, again, were still covered. This man couldn't see so much later, and Jesus interacts with him again. And Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has actually come back to meet somebody again, a miracle deja vu, if you will. In John chapter 5, we saw this. Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed. He'd been paralyzed for years. Jesus heals him, and then they meet up again, but the interaction is not very good. Jesus looks at the man who had just healed from his paralysis— He tells him, don't sin Because if you do Something worse will happen to you And what what does this man do who has just been healed? Who was lame for such a long time? You know what he does? He turns Jesus in He doesn't like it He knows the religious leaders are looking to persecute Jesus So he decides, I'm going to turn him over What a grateful person And he loved his healing but he did not like his rebuke from Jesus. There's something bigger going on, right? He wanted to hold on to his sin. So almost as we encounter this passage here, we wonder, are we going to have another negative example? Are we going to have another problem? Is Jesus going to interact with this man who he's just healed, and is he going to have to rebuke him for something else? Well, look at what Jesus asked him. He meets him up again. Verse 35, I'll read it again. And Jesus heard that he had been cast out, or they cast him out, this is the religious leaders, and he found him, and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus anticipates that this is going to be a very good meeting. You can't tell in the English, but in the Greek, Greek is a wonderful language, that sometimes the nuances you don't pick up in the English. See, as you construct a question in Greek, you can kind of tip your hand to what you anticipate the answer will be. So in this case right here, the way it's structured, the way John structures Jesus' question in Greek, it tips the hand a little bit and tells us that Jesus is anticipating a positive answer. He's anticipating a yes. We could translate it like this. You believe in the Son of Man, don't you? Do you hear that now in the English? It sounds like the answer is going to be a yes, an affirmative. That's exactly what Jesus is asking this man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? I know you do. Now what does Jesus mean by this? What does Son of Man mean? Why does he ask him this question? Son of Man is a rich term for Jesus. He loves it. It's like his number one way to describe himself. It's like his favorite nickname, if you will. If Jesus had one of those Colorful little hello tags. It would say hello. I am the son of man Jesus loves this title, right? Let me show you in the gospel of john how it's one of his favorites go to john chapter three Just three passages, but it's littered. It's just the gospel is just littered with this terminology son of man So what is jesus asking this man? I anticipate honestly that john has not captured the entire conversation that jesus is having with this man who was born blind I think he gives us some of the conversation. The reason I believe that is because the term Son of Man is so loaded for Jesus. It means so much. So my, I anticipate that we're only getting a fraction of the conversation that Jesus is having with his blind man. I think Jesus is telling him more. Because the Son of Man term is more than just referring to Jesus' humanity. Look in John chapter 3, verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does Son of Man mean for Jesus? It means I am the crucified one. I am the one who will be lifted up. I am the one who will be a sacrifice for your redemption. I am the one who will die on the cross and rise again for the forgiveness of your sins. In John chapter 5, verse 27, we see the same language used, but now with a different, different nuance to it. John chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says this, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying here? I'm not just the crucified one i'm not just the one who will die and rise again for the forgiveness of sins i'm the one who has authority authority to judge all mankind another chapter in fact just one chapter from 527 is 6 627 look what jesus says how he refers to son of man again jesus says do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So when Jesus says, Son of Man, to this man born blind, what is he saying to him? Do you believe that I am the crucified one? Do you believe that I am the Savior of the world? Do you believe I'm the one who has the authority to execute judgment on all mankind? Do you believe I'm the only one who can give you eternal life? Do you believe that's me? Jesus is going to anticipate his answer is what? Yes. Yes, I believe that. Now, if Jesus means all of those things, can we assume this this man knows what Jesus is saying? I mean, Jesus, this is a loaded term for Jesus, but would would this man understand what Jesus is saying to him? I want to say, I think he is. I think he does. And here's how I believe that. You remember last week, the The man who was born blind went to the religious leaders and he told them guys this has never been done before ever Nowhere in the history of our people In god's mighty works that he has done for the people of israel. No one no one has ever healed a man born blind And that's true This guy would be the nerd in our sunday school class the kid with all the golden stars on the chart in andrea's class because think about it, even if you're very familiar with the Bible, if I gave you that question it, Can you find one account of somebody who was born blind then being healed in the Old Testament? You may think you can actually find an occurrence of that And I want to think Less of you if you thought that I thought that till I read this passage and I heard that man say it and I wondered Wait a second, r- really? Of all the things that God has done, you know creating everything in six days That's a pretty big one, parting the Red Sea, feeding multitudes, making water come from a rock. I mean, this doesn't seem beyond God, and yet the Old Testament has no occurrence of anyone ever who was born blind and then was healed. So I assume from that, this man knows his Old Testament. And when he hears the term son of man in his ears, I think he thinks of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, the great prophet. The prophet living in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, watching his people be in change, be in slavery, living under the oppression of a foreign enemy. He sees this wonderful vision God gives him. And in that vision, in Daniel chapter 7, he says, I see one like the Son of Man coming, and God gives him an everlasting kingdom. I think this man knows, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Son of man, I know that term. I know that figure who is coming. I know our great deliverer. I'm waiting for the hero. I'm waiting for the Messiah. We've been waiting since our captivity. Even though that we're back in land, we're not the rulers of this land. We're not the top dogs anymore. We're the bottom of the totem pole. And how does the man respond? Look at how he's not puzzled by the terminology. He doesn't say, son of man, I've never heard of that before. He already has the category in his mind. He's just going to ask Jesus, who is it? Look at the man's response to Jesus. John chapter 9, we're in verse 37. Sorry, verse 36. And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you see how he already knows what Jesus is talking about? Now, maybe Jesus explained more. Maybe he said the things he said in John 3 and John 5 and John 6. Maybe he's already kind of given him the details that he's the Savior, the one who has the authority to judge, and the one who can give eternal life. Now, what's going to happen right here as we come to this moment? This man has been healed of his physical blindness. But right here, he's about to spiritually see for the first time ever. His spiritual eyes are going to be open, and this, my friend, is the greatest of the miracles that is performed in John chapter 9. We know this man is spiritually blind. We talked about it last week. When he's first asked about Jesus, he says, well, I think Jesus may be uh, a prophet. Uh, Close, but not really. Then he's asked again, he's interrogated again, and he says, well, I think Jesus might be sinless. Okay, Now the sticker chart in your Sunday school room is not looking so good, right? Jesus might be a sinner. No, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. But then he goes on and he develops and he says, No, Jesus must be from God. He's performed this miracle. He must be a righteous man. Do you see how he's taking steps? He's moving forward. One step closer to the significance of who Jesus is. He starts way over here and he's not sure and he's uncertain. What would we call that? He's spiritually blind to the brilliant light of the significance of who Jesus Christ is. But he starts to see. His vision is not foggy anymore. And the next sentence we get to is his final step. The moment his spiritual eyes are open for the first time. Right, look at his encounter with Jesus. Jesus answers this question and says verse 38 Sorry, verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I am the Son of Man. I'm the one who will be sacrificed. I'm the one who will die and rise. I'm the one who has authority to execute judgment. I am the one who can grant eternal life. I am the one who you are waiting for to come, who would have a kingdom that would last forever. That's me. I'm that guy. And look at his response. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, and it's better And receiving earthly sight because here is where he receives eternal life. It's wonderful for that burden to be taken from him. To see, to finally be reconnected with the physical world, if you will. To finally see his parents who he's never seen before. Imagine that. But now he can see the Son of God. And now he can have eternal life. Now he can have eternal communion with God. Now he can live under the everlasting dominion of the Son of Man because of his confession. Look at verse 39. Sorry, verse 38. I keep jumping ahead. He said, Lord, I believe. And it says, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Now, we can, we can translate these terms. We can translate this term, Lord, and we can translate it as Sir. Just one of respect. We could even take the term worship and find it used in other literature in the ancient world as to be just respectful, say, uh, of an elder or of an officer or of somebody in high political office. We could take it like that. But does that feel appropriate for our passage right here? I think it just a, a first glance at this, we say, no, 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 no. This, this is... This is not just him being polite, him respecting a man of higher office. No, 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 there's something more here. This is the only time in John's gospel, the only time where someone is said to worship Jesus. It's the only time John uses that term. Now, John uses that term in John chapter 4 and in John chapter 12, and every time he uses that term worship, he uses it to refer to people worshiping God. So what does John, the author, want us to do? Does he want us to think respect? wants us to think honor. wants us to think that he's being polite. He's minding his manners, his P's and his Q's and all those other things. No, he wants us to see that this man is bowing down before the Son of Man. His spiritual eyes are open. What a miracle. And then our passage takes a turn. Because a bigger problem comes. More devastating than physical blindness. More devastating than spiritual blindness. Pride. Pride comes in. And this is where we see, I think, John's points summarized in our big idea pride is worse than blindness. Jesus speaks to the blind man, and the Pharisees overhear it. I think Jesus is being intentional. I don't think they're eavesdropping. I think Jesus is probably talking really loud, so they'll hear him. Look at what Jesus says and the Pharisees hear. This is in John chapter 9. We're in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. Now, who is that? Those that who, who do not see may see. Who is that so far in our passage? We've experienced this man. What is Jesus talking about here? Is Jesus talking about physical blindness or spiritual blindness? Well, I think it's a bad question because I think Jesus is talking about both. Because what has happened to the man born blind? He has been healed and he now worships. He confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, believes that he is the Son of Man, the one who can execute judgment, the one who will be crucified, the one who is the Savior of the world, the one who is the grantor of eternal life. So it's like Jesus is saying, I've come. I've come, and when I come and you encounter me, guess what? I can handle all forms of blindness, whether it be physical or spiritual. But look at the other phrase that Jesus used here. It's a little different. I've come that those who do not see may see, and then he says, and those who see may become blind is going on there, Jesus now talks about kind of a reverse effect. almost seems kind of contradictory to what he's talking about. It makes us feel a little uncomfortable if we think about it for a moment. Wait, Jesus came to judge? Jesus came to make people blind? That doesn't seem like uh, what a Savior does. Maybe you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with the Gospel of John, and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, this doesn't This does not jive with everything else I know. That he came to judge. If you go back to John chapter 3, we were just there. Jesus says in verse 17 of John chapter 3, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Wait a second. Now what is going on here? Is Jesus contradicting himself within six chapters here? Jesus just said, Hey, God God the Father did not send me to condemn. And then Jesus says in John 9, I came for judgment. What? What's happening there? Well, it's a superficial kind of contradiction. It's a superficial kind of tension. Because if we just read on in John chapter 3, we see that judgment still happens in the coming of Jesus Christ. Just read the rest of the passage in John chapter 3. We read verse... 17 it says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world But in order that he might be saved that the world might be saved through him now listen to this Whoever believes in him is not condemned but Whoever does not believe is condemned already. What's happening here? I think the best way to explain it is like this. Think of the difference between purpose and effect purpose and effect I'll give you an example my wife just made this wonderful wonderful stew my wife is an amazing cook and my wife is one of those people during COVID you know who like learned a new language or learned to play the violin or organize their you know craft room or something like that my wife took COVID by the horns and just bent it down to the ground I mean she's been so awesome at this time it's been wonderful to see I honestly feel a little bit guilty at how motivated she has been during COVID-19 during the pandemic my wife kind of like threw out the cookbook if you will and I love the cookbook. I know it doesn't look like it, but I have a tapeworm inside, okay? So I do still eat a lot. Okay, that's a joke. I don't have a tapeworm. But my wife is a fabulous cook. But my wife decided, you know what? We're just going to do some new things. Okay, babe, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I just wash the dishes and eat the food. That's what my job is to do. Right, so my wife was making this stew. Now, if my wife goes to me and says, honey, I forgot something. I need you to go buy a onion or an onion. Good thing she's homeschooling the kids, right? <laughs> an onion. I need to buy... One single onion. That's easier for me to enunciate. One single onion. Okay, so I'm going to the store for the purpose of doing what? Going to buy the onion. But as an effect of buying one onion, what do I do? I don't buy a lot of other onions. All the other onions that are on display, if there's 10 onions, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 onions, I'm making a choice, in a sense, in an effect, to not buy 59 of the other onions. My purpose is to buy one. Now, it would be really strange if my wife told me, hey, babe, will you go to the store and not buy 59 onions? First, I'd be like, how do you know how many onions are at the store? (laughs) That's super creepy, really big brother-ish. I don't like that. I don't feel comfortable with that. No, but it's the effect. My purpose was one thing. My priority was one thing. Go get the onion for Lindsay. But the effect was I didn't buy all the other onions. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. God sent His Son to do what? For the sole purpose, or the high purpose of doing what? Saving the world. Saving the world. But what happens if we don't accept Him as Savior? Then the effect is what? Condemnation. is judgment. To reject the Savior, now His coming is one of judgment. Because you have pushed away the only thing that can save you. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And I think this is what Jesus is applying to the Pharisees. And look at how the Pharisees respond. Because I think you're going to be surprised. I was surprised. First time reading this. Not only at their response, but then Jesus response to their response. So they overhear this idea that Jesus is coming to make some people see. Physically blind, spiritually blind. And others, he will turn their sight into blindness. He will come, and it will happen. The effect will be one of condemnation One of judgment and look at how the pharisees respond they overhear this and they cannot handle this they're scrolling through their facebook feed right now and they say nope i'm going to apply a meme in response right they're going to stop everything and try to figure this out john chapter 9 verse 39 jesus said for judgment i came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind now some of the pharisees near him heard these things and said to him are we also blind now like i said the way the greek language works it allows you to kind of anticipate what the answer will be you think they think the answer is going to be yes no they think the answer is going to be no basically they're saying we're not blind you're not saying we're blind are you they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, there's no way. Clearly, we're not physically blind. We're not spiritually blind. Now, just stop here. Don't read the passage on the screen. Don't even read it in your Bible. What would you into? Don't cheat, okay? You're not going to get a gold star. I'll take them all away. Miss Andrew will come and take away your goodie bag. And you won't be able to play with the color pencils in, the- in-, in-, in church anymore. <laughs> But just if, if, if you're just maybe reading for this first time or, or maybe you're not familiar with what's what's, what's going to happen I know when I was studying through this passage and reading through it again, I anticipated jesus said yeah, you know what you are blind That's what I anticipated now. Maybe it's because my spiritual gift is sarcasm Right or maybe it's because i'm a little witty sometimes and maybe sometimes I let my words get away from me And maybe sometimes i'm a little bit sassy Well, I kind of feel like jesus. Why wouldn't you use this moment? I mean they kind of It kind of set you up jesus pretty good the pharisees saying wait you think we're blind this is a moment right here i don't know about you i wasn't a physical fighter when i was in junior high high school or now right i'm I'm not now a verbal altercation Ooh, man that's when i you better stretch man because i'm bring your lunch right because i'll go with you at this moment right here i feel like if, if i'm jesus i'm thinking to myself gotcha Yes, I do think you're blind. This is a moment. I mean, these guys have been aggressive, Jesus. These guys really don't like you, Jesus. They have a plot to kill you, Jesus. And they just threw up a softball. Jesus just knock it out of the park, and he does not He doesn't say they're blind. Now, this kind of makes sense. Why? Because blindness is not a problem for Jesus, right? Surely not physical blindness. He just healed a man, born blind. Surely not spiritual blindness. This man didn't know who Jesus was in the beginning of John chapter 9. It took him several steps to get to a clear understanding of the significance of Jesus. So we could say Jesus also healed his spiritual blindness. Blindness isn't the problem. Jesus sees something else that is turning their sight into blindness. And what is he seeing? Pride. Look at Jesus' response. Not what I anticipated. Maybe not what you anticipated either in verse 40 we just to get the flow of the passage some of the pharisees heard him or heard these things and said to him are we blind and jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt what is jesus saying i got blindness on lock no big deal i can take care of that. whether it's physical whether it's spiritual i got you if you're just blind if you just you don't know you just don't have the information if the problem is ignorance, we can solve that. I can educate you. You can experience me. You can see who I am. I can explain that I'm the Son of Man. I can do all these things for you. Blindness is not the problem. Jesus, it affects saying, I wish you were just blind. You would have no guilt, just like this man. What does Jesus say their problem is? Their biggest need is? Jesus says in verse. 41. And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The problem is not that they don't know. The problem is they think. They think they know when they don't know. The problem is not that they're missing some information. The problem is they think they have all the information. The problem is not that they need rescue. They're in need of help. The problem is they can't see it. Their pride has blinded them to it. They don't admit that they need a Savior. This is our biggest spiritual problem. This is the biggest spiritual problem in our world right now. This is the biggest spiritual problem for all of humanity in the history of humanity. The biggest problem, our biggest problem, wasn't sin. Sin was taken care of at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, yes, it's true that we've all been estranged from God. We've all been kind of moved away, sitting on an island of loneliness, unable to save ourselves, being so far away from the main land. There is an ocean between us and God because of our sin. So, in that sense, is sin a problem? Yes, but God has done what in Christ Jesus? He sent the rescue plane, He's traversed the distance. Christmas happened, then Easter. He traveled the distance. And he travels the distance as what? Our rescuer, our redeemer, the son of man, the one who will bring the eternal kingdom, the one who has the authority to judge, the one who can grant eternal life, the one who will die and rise. The rescue plane is coming. You can see the lights. Your feet are in the sand. You can grip it. You can see it. You got that weird volleyball painted with blood. You call it Wilson, right? You're standing on the island alone. And what does pride do? Shoots down the rescue plane. All your problems were solved. Right there. All of them. Even if you're blind. Distant from God. Far away from Him. A vast ocean of separation between you and your Creator. No problem. Son of Man has come. The worst thing you can do is what? Shoot down your rescue plane and sadly... This is what we see these men do. Pride, pride is worse than blindness. And these men cannot find the Son of Man because they are blind. It reminds me of the proverb in the Old Testament the man who is wise in his own eyes, there is more hope for a fool than for him. This is what's happening. So as followers of Jesus Christ, let's go back to that first question we asked in the very beginning. If you only had one prayer, what would you pray for? Let's just imagine for a moment that you're a friend or a family member of the man who's born blind. What would be number one on your prayer list for your friend who was born blind? What would be the number one thing you would pray for? Would it be his physical blindness? Would it be that he could finally see his parents? for the first time? Would it be that he could interact with his friends, his cousins, his aunts, his uncles? Would it be that he could see the brilliance of a sunset or a sunrise? See the vivid colors of a garden? Or would you pray that his pride would be addressed, his pride would be corrected, that he would admit he has a need for a Savior, that he would see he is far from god and he needs help he needs the son of man what would you pray for what would be priority number one as a church staff as pastors and elders and deacons life group leaders and other leaders we felt extremely burdened over this season extremely burdened for our friends and family members who are far away from god Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we have hope. Yes, is this time hard? It's terrible. It's awful. But we have an anchor to our joy, and that is the Son of God. We know that people are getting sick. We know that people are dying. I know know five friends and family members, five who have died in this season. Some alone, without the comfort, friends or family members. What a terrible way to go. We know there's a pressing need upon us. But if we only had one prayer, one prayer that God would answer, what would be that prayer? Would the prayer be, open up the schools? Would the prayer be, open up buildings? Would the prayer be, restart the economy? Would the prayer be, get people jobs? Those are all good prayers. But if you only had one, wouldn't they all fall short if those were the only things we were worried about is earthly provision even if the burden was as great as physical blindness i can't see i don't know the rosy cheeks of my mom right but if we only had one prayer what would we pray for we would pray that their spirit would be awakened they would see the distance between them and god and they wouldn't shoot down the rescue plane that's come for every single boy, girl, man, and woman in this world. That's what we pray for. So as a team, we decided, whatever God's going to do in this next season, we don't know all the answers. Trust me. We have never said, said the phrase, I don't know, more than we've said at this time. But we know one thing. We believe that whatever God has for Valley Bible Church Whatever task he has before us, we're going to start it with first prayer and ask God, God, would you show us what you want? So we decided as a team, we decided as a team, we've we've been doing this for about 21 days, for three weeks, we've been praying, praying for just one person, just one person. We've really taken a focus, a laser-like focus, and we've prayed for one friend or family member who's far away from God. And I'll tell you, just over three weeks, the stories that we're hearing are dynamic. The conversations that are starting are dynamic. The phone calls that come out of nowhere are dynamic. And Valley Bible Church, we're going to ask you to join us in this. Now, we're not going to start today, but we're going to start March 1st. March 1st, we're going to ask you to pray for one person every single day that God would address their spiritual pride and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you know what really excites me about this? My prayer is that this is just a rerun in American history. You may not know this, but one of the greatest revivals in American history happened during a time of depression. Not the Great Depression, the one before that, in the 1800s. People were losing their jobs, people were just losing their financial stability, people were just just had no hope and they were worried. And then one pastor decided, we're going to pray. We're going to pray every single day. I don't know what to do. I don't have all the answers. I'm not an economist. I can't fix the financial structure, but I can pray. So he starts it up. Pray, a couple people come. The next day, more people come. The next day, more people come. The next day, more people come. After only a couple of weeks, the building is full. He can't do anything. Other churches start to get on board, and they start filling up. And then cities are filling up. And then, and then it's moving from different cities to different states. And then it moves across the ocean. And just during a small couple of years, one million people are brought to Jesus Christ. One million. I'm tired of being bombarded by the numbers on the news of all the lives we've lost. I'm tired of seeing that number. I'm tired of it. It's hard. I can't imagine what it was like when the body counts would come in from Vietnam or World War II or World War I, but it feels like that. Every day, the ticker is the same. And I don't care if the arrow is green, the stock market is going up. Every time I see a new number, I think of the five I've lost. I want a different number. Do you want a different number? I want a different number. How about a million people? Wouldn't it be amazing if God brought forth a revival that gave us more souls into the kingdom of God than have been lost during this pandemic? Wouldn't it be wonderful if 2021 was marked by God and a great movement that more people came to the knowledge of his son than lost their lives to a virus? Wouldn't it be wonderful Maybe it just starts like it did before. Maybe we need to learn from our history. Maybe we just need to pray. Maybe we just need to pray. So this week, what I want you to do is this. Very simple. Simple step. Is I want you to ask God this week, just every day this week, if you would, say, Father, help me to focus on one name. Just one. Give me one name I can pray for. One person I can pray for. One friend or family member who doesn't yet know you. Are giving that name? Because I want to commit myself in March. And we have a wonderful resources to help you do that. You're going to see all those things coming out. It's, good. It, it, it's awesome. And I think God is going to smile on Valley Bible Church in March. I think he's going to say, I'm looking for someone. I'm looking for a church to be a part of the great harvest I'm bringing. And what is he going to hear from Valley Bible Church? We're ready. And I'm praying for this person right now. Now, maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe during this season, it's been one of searching for you. Maybe you're watching this. And you just decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out this service online because I, I don't know where I'm at spiritually. I'm on a journey, and I'm not certain. I'm not certain what are the big answers to life's questions. So maybe that's you. Well, I want to tell you, Valley Bible Church is, is a great place for you. It's a great place for you to be curious. It's a great place for you to ask life's biggest questions. It really is. And I want to tell you right up front, the biggest hurdle in Christianity, it's the first one. It's the first one. Why? Because the first one says, I'm in need. I need a Savior. The first one is humbling. The first one is admitting that you're not the hero of your story. You're not Batman. You're more like Robin. You're just holding the utility belt. But it's true. We're not the heroes of our story. We need help. We need a Savior. And that may sound so belittling, but let me tell you, friend, there are hundreds of people in this room, hundreds of people who go to this church who have made that confession, and they would tell you it's the most wonderful confession they've ever made in their life. A confession that says, I need so, friend, if that's you, you need God's forgiveness. God has provided that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The rescue plane is right there. Flashing lights. Plane is equipped with everything that you need. Don't shoot it down. I pray you receive His forgiveness today. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we see very clearly from our passage this morning that pride is worse than blindness. That what keeps us from everything that you would want for us is us. The greatest enemy is not outside of us, it is us. Father, we are the only ones who can shoot down the plane. The government can't shoot it down, our enemies can't shoot it down. There's no oppressor who can shoot down the plane. You can get through any blockade. Father, you have sent your son to this world. The only one who can shoot down the plane is us. And oh, Father, I pray. I pray that you would would hear the prayers of your people this week. And I know they're going to pray. I know they may cheat. They might say, you know what, Pastor Paul, I'm not waiting for March. I'm going to start now. Good for them. I think you're going to be honored in that. But Father, I, I pray that you would grant them focus. Grant them that one name, place on their heart, that one person, that one friend or family member who's far away from God, far away from you. And Father, I'm eager to be used by you this season. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, who wouldn't call you, Father. Oh, I pray you'd be with them. Show them that you've granted them forgiveness in Jesus Christ, if they would I pray you meet them today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.